This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 104, continuing the history of six-day races, running as far as you can in six days. This episode will include a story never told before, the story of the first major six-day race held in America with 12 competitors called the Grand Walking Tournament for the Championship of the World. I would like to thank those of you who have signed up to be a patron for Ultra Running History. Please help this podcast continue by becoming an Ultra Running History patron. You can sign up to contribute a little each month. Patreon exists because when creators are paid, they can create more amazing things. Things that inspire us, teach us, challenge us. Things that make us laugh. Go to ultrarunninghistory.com slash member to become my partner. The year 1876 was a particularly important year in ultra running or pedestrian history, and thus several episodes have covered the events held that year. It was the year when the six-day races started to spread across America for the first time. Lost in Ultra Running History is the story of the first major six-day race held in America in the massive exposition building in Chicago, Illinois. In addition that year, Daniel O'Leary took the six-day race to California. In America in 1876, O'Leary was the true pedestrian champion of America, and he was the driving force to spark interest in the sport. He competed, trained, and encouraged other athletes, and invested his own time and money to make events successful. O'Leary received continual six-day challenges from others. Now that he was a champion over Edward Payson Weston, he was careful not to waste time with pretenders. When Caleb Sidnam, age 57, a travel agent from Chicago, publicly challenged him, O'Leary countered with strict conditions for contenders to put up guaranteed money to show that they were serious. Show me the money! He said, During the past few months, I have been much annoyed by persons requesting me to give them a start of several miles. I will give no odds whatever, being convinced of the necessity of having such persons make a record on strength of their own merits. Henry Schmiel, a German-American and O'Leary's friend, was one who hoped to be a challenger. He made it clear that he wanted no handicaps or favors. O'Leary took the Overland Railroad across the country in March 1876 to San Francisco, California. He then published a challenge to any man on the Pacific Coast to race against him from 100 to 500 miles for as much as $10,000. If a challenger didn't come forward, he would do a solo six-day walk for 500 miles and try to beat the world best time, which was a little more than an hour less than six days. How would California react to this new sport and O'Leary's brash challenges? One newspaper wrote, If O'Leary would devote his leg ability to some useful employment, say, for instance, carry the route on a morning paper, stock boy for a live broker, hashlinger at a cheap restaurant, or errand boy for a laundry, his life would not be an entire failure. O'Leary, go to work. 
On April 3rd, 1876, at 1 a.m., without a challenger, O'Leary started a solo six-day walk to try to reach 500 miles in 140 hours at the Horticultural Hall in San Francisco. This was California's first exposure to six-day pedestrianism. He succeeded and reached 500 miles in 139 hours, 32 minutes, crushing the world best for 500 miles. He lost 17 pounds during the walk, was stumbling near the end, and did not continue to break his world six-day record of 503 miles. Within a couple days, Californians were impressed to see him recovered and walking out on the streets of the city. Back in Chicago in early April 1876, two very influential sporting men in Chicago worked out an agreement with the managers of the Exposition Building in Chicago to stage a six-day race in May 1876 that they called the Grand Walking Tournament for the Championship of the World. The organizers were William Curtis, who founded the Chicago Athletic Club, and Tom Foley, a Chicago alderman, owner of a grand billiard hall and champion of that sport. They announced that they had already had six entries that included O'Leary and Schmiel, and predicted that the field would probably have a dozen of the best pedestrians in the country, and therefore in the world. In San Francisco, O'Leary was surprised to hear that his name had been attached to this planned event without his permission. He immediately sent a letter to the Chicago Tribune. He explained that he had never entered the event and had never been approached about it, and requested that his name be withdrawn. He was not coming back from California for it. He wished them well, hoping that it would prove to be a big bonanza, producing a champion that he could compete against at another time. This came as a big blow to the organizers. Curtis had been a big O'Leary supporter and friend. This clearly caused a rift between the two. Curtis and Foley understood how important it was financially to have O'Leary associated with the race and were bitterly disappointed. They knew that a championship without O'Leary wouldn't really be a championship. They immediately published a letter that essentially called O'Leary a liar and that his response was uncalled for. They claimed that before going to California, O'Leary had agreed to the event if the exposition building could be obtained. O'Leary's friends had entered him into the race and had sent multiple telegrams to O'Leary informing him. The organizers scrambled with the devastating news and decided that the show must go on without its biggest draw. The organizers did their best to entice spectators to attend the event. The arrangements at the building are all that could be wished for, and there is nothing to prevent the venture from being a successful one, and very interesting to the lovers of athletics. The interior of the building is prettily decorated for the occasion with the national colors. The Chicago Tribune was skeptical whether the event would succeed. The Tribune feels called upon to offer that they should keep the female pedestrian element out of the affair. People are sick enough of that. The track was put into place with both an outer track and an inner. The city and county surveyor carefully measured both tracks, six and seven laps to a mile. A chronometer was obtained to time the race, and a large grandstand was put up that could seat about 1,500 people. 
A large tally board was put up by the judge's stand near an elevator. Arrangements were made for the Western Union Telegraph Company to be able to send out results as well as receive baseball scores that would be announced to the crowd. For more entertainment, a band would play every afternoon and evening. Sideshow short races would be conducted with distances up to 10 miles. A big draw would be David Stanton, a champion bicyclist from England, considered to be the greatest cyclist in the world. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. He would put on exhibitions on his 60-inch spidery-looking machine that he rode high off the ground. He had once ridden the famous 100-mile bath road to England in 8 hours 28 minutes, had pedaled 650 miles to Paris in less than two days, and performed a solo six-day ride in 1875. The prize for the winner of the six-day race would be $2,000, or worth about $52,000 today, and he would receive a field medal. Wow! Twelve walkers toward the starting line at 12.02 a.m., on May 15, 1876, in the spacious exposition building on the Lake Michigan shoreline in Chicago. The competitors were James Smith, originally from England, living in Chicago. In 1873, he finished 100 miles in 22 hours 33 minutes in Wisconsin. He was famous for walking against an elephant in P.T. Barnum's New York City Hippodrome in 1874. William E. Harding was a famous pedestrian from New York City. He was the editor of the National Police Gazette and had raced against Mli Lola in the first Battle of the Sexes in P.T. Barnum's Hippodrome in March 1875. See episode 97. William Anderson was from Richland, Iowa. He was a local celebrity but had not competed in walking before. John T. Ennis was a carpenter from Chicago who served in the Civil War for Illinois. He had been competing in walking since 1868 when he won a local championship belt. Alvin Feefield of Jackson, Michigan was a fine pigeon sharpshooter, but not much of a walker. This would be his first event. George W. Guyon of Canada and Milwaukee was a brakeman for the Milwaukee and St. Paul Railroad. Two weeks before the race, he walked 85 miles from Milwaukee to Chicago in 21 hours, 35 minutes. Six others from Chicago were also in the race. During the first day, most of the group walked without long stops until evening. When most of them stopped to sleep, Guyon and Smith were leading with 91 miles. Ennis and Anderson both dropped out of the race early before reaching 50 miles. Ennis had been nursing an injury from being kicked by a horse a few days earlier. Who was the favorite? It is not easy to pick out the winner as might have been supposed before the men started. Smith was made the prime favorite, but it is evident that Guyon may prove a very formidable rival. Guyon had a lead of five miles after day two with 155 miles. Russell was in second place. Five of the walkers had passed 100 miles. The crowds were further entertained by foot races between men and boys that included wagering. After three days, Guyon was in the lead with 225 miles. Four had dropped out. On day four, Guyon reached 290 miles with Russell 20 miles behind. 
Two others were in, quote, a very shaky condition. On the final day, there were only three walkers remaining on the track, and most of the citizens of Chicago had lost interest in the race. The sideshow got more attention. Stanton tried to ride his bicycle 18 miles in one hour for a supposed $500 wager. He almost made it, coming up short by just three minutes. He knew he could do it on a larger track where he would not have to dodge walkers. The walking tournament that has been dragging itself along at the exposition building for a week past came to an uninteresting end, and according to posters and handbills, the winner could go forth and proclaim himself the champion pedestrian of the world. Guyon won with 412 miles, Russell in second with 401, and Fifield was third with 363. The awards were not presented at the end, but were promised to be awarded the following day once they could balance the books. The comparative failure of the tournament cannot be laid at the fault of the managers, who had done everything and made many sacrifices to ensure success for their undertaking. The poor character of the walking in itself, and the absence of any noted pedestrians, O'Leary or Weston, are causes of which the lack of success may be attributed. Sadly, the whole affair was a financial bust that barely covered the costs. Guyon was only awarded the field medal for his victory and did not receive a cent. The only man that got his money was Mr. Stanton, the bicycle rider who held on to Mr. Foley's arm until he was paid and then left the city promising never to return to that blasted place. Others who were hired for sideshows received nothing. The judges and scorer went about penniless, working the entire week for nothing. In San Francisco, it was announced that O'Leary and Schmiel agreed to compete for six days, hoping to reach 500 miles. A week before the match, the two were putting on short walking expeditions around the city to generate interest. The Olympic Club in San Francisco and Mayor A.J. Bryant made arrangements for the race to be held in San Francisco's Mechanics Pavilion, the first major indoor arena in San Francisco, seating nearly 11,000 people. Judges and timekeepers were appointed and a sawdust track constructed. The race began shortly after midnight on May 15, 1876. After nine hours, O'Leary reached 46 miles with about a two-mile lead and passed 100 miles in 22 hours, 17 minutes. After day one, the score was O'Leary 102 miles, Schmiel 86. Schmiel was having difficulty with one of his legs, and many were betting that he would give out soon. But he had let people know that he always felt worse for the first two or three days. Paying spectators increased with each day. The pedestrians were continuing mile after mile, and hour after hour with seemingly unbated vigor and activity. After day five, O'Leary reached 372 miles, with Schmiel at only 254, and he could, quote, scarcely drag himself along, resting frequently. Some of the city of San Francisco just could not understand what the attraction was for the event. Exactly what public good is to be gained, or what of that which is useful is to be added to the store of human knowledge. The world is not benefited by knowing that O'Leary can walk 500 miles within six days. 
The final tally was 431 miles for O'Leary and 282 miles for Schmiel. Both were seen out on the streets a couple days later, Schmiel walking unsteadily with a cane. He blamed his loss on not being in good condition. The press expressed the opinion that they both failed, rather than pointing out that they both accomplished something pretty amazing. Before leaving California, O'Leary participated in one more six-day race, again in the Mechanics Pavilion in San Francisco. His competitors were four true amateurs, all in their 20s, and all rookie long-distance walkers. They would walk a type of relay against him, their total miles against his. They could come and go as they pleased, logging miles whenever they wanted. Here were the amateurs. William Frost Jr. was the city editor of the San Francisco Evening Post. His two-year-old son, Robert Frost, became the famous American poet. George Phelps Jr. was a reporter for the Daily Alta California newspaper. James Nealon was an Irish-American, a clerk in the sheriff's office, a champion handball player, avid hunter, horseman, dog breeder, and later a state senator. C. Drogi was a California street stockbroker. They started right after midnight on June 19, 1876. O'Leary didn't feel great and left the track after 17 miles and needed a long rest. He recovered and by 10 a.m. reached 27 miles. In the evening, O'Leary reached 91 miles, with the amateurs' mileage two miles ahead of him. By day three at noon, the amateurs had totaled 252 miles to O'Leary's 184. On day four, O'Leary's doctor forced him to stop for the day. He had been bleeding from his nose almost continuously. The amateurs had collectively walked 316 miles, and O'Leary was at 248 miles. The interest of spectators waned terribly. This evening, Frost came to walk at 8 p.m., found an array of empty benches to welcome him at the entrance. Where is everyone hiding? And after walking only two miles, retired in disgust. O'Leary laid on his back at his hotel, with his eyes sunken in his head and his feet looking like a three-week-old corpse. The amateurs are nursing their blistered feet and wondering where their share of the gate money is coming from after expenses are paid. Show me the money! At midnight after day five, the walk ended abruptly because the gas bill could not be paid and there were not even a dozen spectators present. It is said that O'Leary will probably never walk again as he burst a blood vessel. All amateurs have plenty of blisters and calluses. O'Leary left California two days later with his reputation tarnished. He ignored entirely his contract with the amateurs in the late contest as regards to the prizes to be awarded them. Back home in Chicago on July 20th, 1876, O'Leary raced against Schmiel again, this time in a three-day race for 250 miles at McCormick's Hall in Chicago. It is important to mention this because of the controversial outcome. The race turned into a brawl. As Schmiel was ahead of O'Leary by about a mile in the afternoon, things got ugly. O'Leary, in his efforts to catch up, was accused of breaking into a run. 
the German part of the audience fairly yelling the charge at him. Schmiel's judge, Jacob Langacher, gave O'Leary a right-hander in the region of the nose. Things later calmed down and the race continued, but the German audience continued yelling that O'Leary was still cheating. Schmiel, with nearly a three-mile lead, left the track in protest, insisting that O'Leary passed him while running at one of the corners. The referee ruled in favor of Schmiel and declared that Schmiel won the race. O'Leary mounted a chair and swore that he could lick any German in the country. Despite this ugly affair, O'Leary and Schmiel remained lifelong friends. On August 7, 1876, O'Leary started another 500-mile solo six-day walk at the American Institute building. This wasn't a race, but it nearly torpedoed the sport in the court of public opinion. O'Leary wanted to exhibit his skills in New York for the first time and took on the challenge without any specific training and in the hot weather. At the start, inside the building, it was 90 degrees. He successfully reached 100 miles during the first 24 hours. To combat the heat, he drank bowls of iced beef tea and sherry with egg. He later gave up the alcohol and instead drank chicken soup. In the end, O'Leary succeeded in front of 8,000 spectators, reaching 500 miles in 143 hours, 17 minutes, and then stopped. As soon as it was known that O'Leary was on his last round, the barriers were broken down. The benches and chairs were thrown aside or broken, and the multitude rushed forward to see the end. It seemed as though O'Leary would be smothered, but by Herculean efforts, his friends managed to rescue and carry him to his room. It took nearly 20 minutes for the huge crowd to leave the building. Shouting and hurrahing, they surged into the street and clamored into cars until the vehicles could scarcely be moved and every side street was full of people all homeward bound. O'Leary was the first person in history to successfully reach 500 miles in six days in New York City. It was the third time he had reached the 500 mile milestone. He was the only person in the world at the time with multiple 500-mile six-day accomplishments. His friends presented him with a costly medal made of gold ornamented with a silver wreath enclosing a shoe and garter studded with diamonds. Frank Clark, who accompanied O'Leary 20 miles of the walk and had been hired to take tickets at the door, published a damaging accusation that the entire city had been duped by O'Leary. <gasps> he said that the track was significantly short, that O'Leary had actually only walked 272 miles. Another critic, Edward Plummer, who was a timekeeper during the week, stated the books were often falsified and that O'Leary had only walked 297 miles. He said he personally had credited O'Leary extra miles while he was sleeping and that O'Leary cheated everyone out of payment of their work. Plummer was asked why he was party to the alleged deception, and he only laughed and said that the whole thing was a fraud. O'Leary countered that Plummer was a liar and had attempted to blackmail him. Plummer had been demanding that he be paid $20 extra for his timer duties and told O'Leary that he had credited him with extra laps. If he wasn't paid, he would expose the truth. 
O'Leary wrote, Believing the creatures to be unworthy of public notice, I will dismiss them from my mind, feeling assured that the citizens of New York will place little confidence in the assertions of such men. It was discovered later that Plummer was a shady individual who had several aliases. O'Leary had not been very careful about the men who he had hired for the event. The five judges for the event signed a statement that Clark's accusation was false, that a competent surveyor had measured the track. To our personal knowledge, Mr. O'Leary passed in front of the judge's stand 4,000 times, with which eight circuits to a mile clearly proves that he accomplished the distance 500 miles within six consecutive days. The statement did minimal help. The charges were published nationwide, and O'Leary's reputation was severely damaged in the minds of many. O'Leary was ready to leave the criticism behind, sail to England, and pull away some of the international attention that Edward Payson Weston was getting there. Stay tuned for O'Leary's Adventures in England. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>